Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 376. And today we are hearing from six different whitetail experts on the ins and outs of hunting deer during the month of October. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today we're celebrating the month of October. It's here. And uh, let me tell you what, I am really, really excited about it. Uh, That's no surprise, I suppose. To anyone listening, I'm sure you're pretty excited as well. This is an amazing time of year. Uh, I just wrote an article actually over at the Meat Eater website in which I made the claim that October is the most interesting month of the entire hunting season. And I say this because it's this month full of tension and anticipation. It's, it's, it's just like the analogy I used is a roller coaster that, you know, that first hill of a roller coaster when you're just slowly going up and there's that click, 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 click as you get closer and closer and closer and closer to the top. And then you get to the very top and it's, oh my God, it's about to just drop out from underneath me. That feeling, that rise that's what October is like for me. That month just slowly builds toward the rut. And you know, at any second now, things could just go crazy, but you don't know when that's going to be. It could be, it might not be till the very end of the month, but it could also be October 3rd when a big cold front comes pushing through and the woods just lights up or that first early doe comes into heat on October 15th and all of a sudden it's, it's nuts. That can happen at any point. And even if that doesn't happen, it's just the slow, steady rise of testosterone in the bucks and excitement for all of us. And each day it's going to be different. Speaking of that difference, there's just this incredible diversity to the month where, you know, what's going on on October 1st is very different from what's going on and from how you should hunt on October 15th, which then again is even more different from what you're doing on October 31st. There's, there's almost three different hunting seasons just within the month of October. So for all of those reasons, I wanted to take a step back today and and kind of try to get a big picture strategy session going on for all things October. 
And to do that, I wanted to to use a diverse set of voices and a bunch of different ideas here. And, and I'm lucky we have that kind of resource right at our fingertips here on the Wired Hunt podcast because we've been doing these things, having these conversations with the best of the best in the whitetail world for seven years now. Myself and Dan Johnson, we got this thing cracking in the spring of 2014. So we've been doing this for what seems like a lifetime. And what I've realized, though, is that more recently here, a lot of you who've just joined us in the past couple of years, you've missed out on a lot of really good stuff from those early podcasts, some really foundational conversations back in 2014, 15, 16. And it really hasn't seen the light of day compared to our recent things. So here's my game plan. For this one, I've gone back through our archives and selected six different whitetail experts from those early episodes who covered various aspects of hunting in October. I went back and listened to those and I handpicked a selection of excerpts from those conversations. And sometimes those are five minutes, sometimes it's 20 minutes. But when pieced together between these six different people, you get this very interesting, very varied very varied. What I'm trying to say is very diverse set of ideas for hunting throughout the upcoming month. Now, keep in mind, when you're listening to this set of excerpts and these different people, you're going to hear some conflicting ideas. One person's going to say one thing. The next person might say something completely the opposite. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's an interesting and good thing. And if you've listened to this podcast over the years, I've, I've said this time and time again. I'm going to say it again. There are a million different ways to skin this cat, that being hunting and killing deer. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And you can have totally different ideas from one person to the next, and they can both be very successful. So I love comparing and contrasting these different sets of strategies and circumstances. So when you you listen to this, listen to these people, think about the circumstances that they're in, the types of places they're hunting, the way that they hunt. And then compare and contrast that to what you have in what your situation is. Do you hunt public or private? Do you hunt big farms or small farms? Do you hunt, you know, do you have a lot of time to hunt or just a few days to hunt? Think about those things as you listen to these people. And I think that's going to help you figure out what's the best set of ideas to pull from this to apply to your own hunts. Now, here's who's up to bat today. We're going to hear from Gordon Whittington, Dan Infault, Bernie Berenger, Jeff Sturgis, Adam Hayes, and Mark Drury, in that order. Now, keep in mind, these are just little polls from much larger conversations. So if you're intrigued with you know, with any one of these excerpts, I'd really encourage you to go back, search for the full episode with each person, and give those a listen. Um, when we get to the beginning of each different person, I'm going to mention who it is and then what number that episode is. So you can easily go back into your podcast app and and find that one. These are these are way back there. So you'll have to do a little searching. But man, every one of these is, is really good in their own way. So I would definitely recommend you do that. Uh before that though, I guess one last thing I want to do. I want to give you a few things to think about from from my perspective. As someone who sat here for seven years now hearing from all of these folks and more, and trying to synthesize all of this down into a few guiding principles. Um, I, I don't claim to be on the same level as any of these guys, but I think if any of you have followed along since, excuse me, since the beginning, it's I've had a I've had a a cool opportunity to to take all these different 
tips and tactics and ways of hunting, take it all in and guinea pig some of these things myself. So for whatever it's worth, here's a few of my high level October hunting 101 pointers, I guess a few of the, of the big, if, if I were writing an article or if I were writing a book even on hunting October, these might be four really important chapters of that book. So I'm going to give you the, the high level on that. That'll be a good starting point. And then from there, I'm going to send you in to these in-depth, much more detailed conversations with these six people. So here's my starting points for October. Number one, if you have an October 1st opener like we do in Michigan, you've got a really unique opportunity coming up, right? If you're listening to this on the day this podcast drops, it is October 1st. And those first couple of days of the month represent one of your very best chances of the entire season. And, you know, if you had a September 15th opener, you had that special opportunity on September 15th. If you had a September 1 opener, et cetera, et cetera. But, but for those of us listening today in Michigan or elsewhere, Illinois, there's a whole bunch of states opening right now. Those first couple of days of the month represent this special chance because these deer have not been heavily pressured up to this point. So I love taking a big swing on one of those first couple of days. These deer are still acting relatively normal. They're still much more daylight active than they might be a week or two from now. And they're on those patterns. To a degree, they're still on a bedding to feeding pattern. So what you want to do is have as much information at your fingertips as possible. Maybe that's trail camera images. Maybe that is actual long-distance observations that you're doing in the nights leading up to the opener. Maybe this is historical data, sightings and pictures from last year and the year before. But take whatever information you have to put together the very best guess at where you think that buck or bucks in general would be feeding right now because it's really a food game in early October. You need to know what that top food source is and then take an aggressive swing into the very best spot you can think of given that. So again, you need to identify what the number one food source is right now and get as close to that food source and to wherever the best bedding is where you've come to find bucks or bedding. Try to get in between that and aggressively put yourself in the best position. Again, I like to go for that top top option right now because again, you've got a little window here, October 1st, October 2nd, maybe the 3rd. And then if there's a lot of pressure around you, you know, by the 10th, 11th, it could be a totally different ball game. So take that aggressive swing at the top food source right now. Now, as I mentioned, things can quickly change. And as you're going to hear from a bunch of people coming up, and as I'm sure many of you have heard in the past, there's this thing that a lot of people refer to as the October lull, right? People say, well, once you get into October, you know, the second week, third week, even, you know, once you get into the first, past the first couple of days of October, you're going to get this October lull, which a lot of people see as this, this decrease in daylight deer activity. Uh, because of that, a lot of people don't like to hunt during mid-October or will just hunt does in mid-October or whatever. Here's my perspective on this is that it's not so much a lull as it is a shift. You have studies have shown a steady increase in deer activity and buck activity throughout the month, but that's not necessarily what a lot of people see. And that's because after the first week of October or so, a bunch of things are changing in the woods. Number one, a lot more deer hunters. Number two, a lot of changing food sources, right? If you hunt in ag land, you know, farm country, your beans are drying down and not as attractive anymore. 
corn is drying down and becoming more attractive. Uh, you probably have a lot of acorns possibly dropping. You're going to have other soft-mast trees like apple trees starting to drop apples in certain parts of the country. Not only that, but you've got leaf cover dropping across the country as it gets colder. So you have changing food sources and changing cover also coinciding with more hunting pressure. All that just means a lot of change in deer activity. They're going to react to those changes. They're going to adjust to where the hunting pressure is. So this just means there's a lot of movement, not that you're going to see, but movement in patterns. So these bucks might still be daylight active. They might still be on your property, but because of some of these changes, because of hunting pressure, whatever it is, they might just be doing this closer to their bedding areas. Or maybe they're not hitting that big old bean field that you saw them on a month ago, but they're hitting acorns in the timber. You've got one of two options in my mind for the middle of October, this October shift time frame. I'm going to say this is October 7th through October 21st, maybe, give or take. Um, I think if you don't know your area or if you are relatively inexperienced or if you just don't have a strong handle on how deer react to those changes I just described, this might be a time to play it a little more safe. Hunt the edges observe, um, maybe target does. Maybe if you've got like one small property, that's your best stuff. Maybe you don't hunt your best stuff right now. Maybe you go and hunt some nearby public land and experiment, try different things, get aggressive there. Uh, but without blowing out your honey hole quite yet, that's if you don't have a strong handle on your spots. But if you do have a strong handle, or if you are really experienced, you know your properties well, you've scouted, you know where these bucks are betting. If you have that kind of intelligence, not I'm not saying like IQ, I'm saying like intel, like uh, scouting information. If you have that kind of stuff, it can be a good time to get aggressive because these bucks are still on a pattern. They are still tight to their core areas. So if you know that stuff, they're, they're killable. You'll hear from people like Dan Infault, who this is a great time for them because they know where those buck bedrooms are and they go in tight and they hit those things hard and they can have success. So you either play it safe or you have to be very aggressive to get into these spots where these bucks are still daylight active. It's just high risk, high reward. So think about that. Number three, October really is a month of playing the weather game. Uh, you can have a situation that just happened here a few days ago, so this is a little bit pre-October, but just you know, the very last couple of days of September, we had a big cold front pass through here in Michigan, and it just lit up the woods. I mean, I was glassing an area last night, and I saw eight or nine different bucks on their feet two hours before dark, a full hour plus earlier than I've seen any of these bucks moving until this front hit, and then bam, here they are, including a mature buck. There was sparring. There was scraping, and it was directly linked, in my mind, to this big 25-degree temperature drop. So when you get those big temperature drops, you got to jump on them. you got to go and take advantage of them. Most of my month of October is predicated on when this good weather comes through. When it's warm and cruddy, I might still hunt, but I'm not going to hunt my good stuff. Uh, But when the good fronts push through, I'm going to take my swings. That's when I'm going to strike. Okay, And finally... Speaking of strikes, this last portion of the month, that last 10 days or so, really the last six or seven days of the month, if I'm drilling down even further, this is one of your very best chances of the year in my mind. You've got this moment, and you're going to hear Mark Drury talk about this, where you have two things coming together in a special way. You've got 
bucks that are still hanging tight to their core areas and they're still on a little bit of a pattern. So if you know a buck or if you know where a couple bucks are spending a lot of time and you've got history with these deer and you know your property well, you can still have confidence that they're going to do that thing. They're still going to be in that area you know, but that pattern is overlapping. Think of like a Venn diagram where this overlap is. This is overlapping also with the beginning of the rut. So you've got this super high testosterone. You've got bucks that are looking for the first doe. Maybe the first doe does come into heat. That's all happening while these bucks are still hanging out in that area that you know. So you can kill these bucks in spots you know while they're still hanging on the spots you can hunt and they're getting a little frisky early. 10 days later, November 7th, this this pattern could be blown up. Now they're doing crazy things. Now they're running all over the place. These bucks are roaming a mile down the road instead of right near 40 acres. So take advantage of that last window in October. Take a surgical strike into these spots where you know these bucks are living, but now you've got the chance they're going to move an hour early. And if somehow you can get that cold front that hits in late October, holy smokes, get in there, cancel work, cancel dinner plans, uh, Whatever you got to do, that is, that's the, the good stuff right there. So those are four high-level October ideas to think about over the next 31 days. There's a lot more we're going to get into with these next six people, though. A lot of good ideas. We're going to kind of bounce around a lot. You're going to hear about, you know, should you hunt mornings or not? You're going to hear, what do you think about the October lull? You're going to hear about different stands that you, different stand ideas you should think about. You're going to hear about different weather conditions and how these guys think about them during October. A lot of different stuff. But keep in mind these four high-level ideas. Keep in mind what I said in the very beginning. Try to cherry pick what you can use from all these different things. And finally, uh, as we get through this, these are interviews I described, as I mentioned, from 2014, 15, 16. This is a long time ago. So you're going to hear myself and Dan Johnson, who helped me out with a lot of these early episodes. You're going to hear us asking some questions or even sharing some of our perspectives that might be different than what I think right now. So anything I say during these old school interviews, take with a grain of salt. This is this is young Mark. This is old Mark. This is old Dan. Uh, and you'll hear me call Dan Dallas too. That was his old nickname. <laughs> We're going to get a little old school here. But when you're hearing from our guests, it's some good stuff. It's some varied stuff. And I, I guess, you know, as I'm building all this up, you don't want to hear from me anymore. Let's let's stop with the Mark Kenyon rambling. Let's get into our six expert opinions, our October masterclass. And we're going to kick this off with Gordon Whittington of North American Whitetail Magazine. For the 15 minutes, actually, before you came on the show with us, me and Dan were just talking about our October hunting woes, all the things that have gone wrong for us and how we have not killed a deer yet. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to start our conversation with Gordon was just about some of the challenges of hunting this time of year. We're entering, and we've all heard it a thousand times, we're entering this period of the season that many people refer to as the October lull. Um, I guess maybe, what do you think about that, Gordon? Is there such a thing? Do you believe that the October lull is, is that fact or fiction? Well, I think there is no question that at various times of the fall, and really year-round, obviously, but during the time of year when hunting is legal, we all know there are times of year when your probability of seeing a mature buck on his feet in legal shooting light are better than others. 
Uh, it depends on habitat, weather, moon phase, but mostly hunting pressure, to some extent habitat type. I, there's all these different factors involved, deer densities, so many things. But I would say that in general, if you, if you talk to the guys who have, uh, let's say, like in Michigan, uh, October 1 bow opener, uh, Illinois that way, you know, right around October 1 at least, you've got, you know, the deer have been out of velvet for three weeks to a month. Uh, the bucks are, you know, of course, somewhat reclusive and solitary, really, when they come out of velvet. They come out of their bachelor groups. They really go into a short travel pattern. They don't move much in daylight. Even if they're not spooked or being hunted, they're not moving a long way to food. And, you know, maybe out in the prairie of Wyoming, you've got deer walking two miles to an alfalfa field and back, you know, even in early season. But for the most part, in most habitats, you have deer on a very short travel pattern. And that's, you know, compounded by the fact that then suddenly we get the acorns and the other fall mass that starts to come into play. And that's, a, that's mostly back in the woods. And we're trying to kill these deer on the edges because we don't want to penetrate their sanctuaries. And yet their sanctuaries might literally have acorns dropping into their bedding areas as those deer are lying there waiting for dark. Well, that deer's got very little incentive unless he's really thirsty. He's got very little incentive to get up and move much in daylight. And I think if you look at radio telemetry and you look at all the different GPS studies that have been done on wild deer, you'll see that mature bucks just have a very short travel pattern at this time of year. So there aren't... If you have the terminus, let's say, is a food plot, and it may be the best food plot in the county, and you may have the best bedding area 200 yards away from there in a swamp or something, if that buck is in that swamp and he's going to that food plot at night, he's got very little ground to cover to get there, and he, he can get on his feet right at dark, you know, stretch a little bit, rub his rack a couple of times, and then prance right out to the food plot, and he's already too late for you to kill him. Now, that's just a fact of life. That, you know, hunting pressure didn't necessarily cause that. It might have accentuated that pattern, but it didn't really cause it. He's just got no incentive to get there early. He's also got no incentive to stay there after daylight in the morning. By the time you, you've got daylight coming over the food plot, he's normally back in a place where you can't get him killed. So these are just realities, and he's not very responsive to rattling or calling, generally speaking. You don't want to do a deer drive. There's all sorts of things that you're not going to do in early season that otherwise might compensate for that lack of uh, mobility on his part or his la- lack of a daytime pattern. You put all that together, and that's a really long-winded way of saying uh, they're hard to kill. Now, <laughs> yeah. but, but we understand why they're hard to kill. They're just not on their feet much in daylight. And, and I don't know what you can ultimately do to change that pattern very much. Uh, trail cameras clearly have made it easier for us to pinpoint those locations where they're spending time but you have to be very careful not to blow the deer out for either checking cameras or going in to hunt that spot. And a lot of guys just get so impatient in early season. It's like, oh, man, I, this fall's finally here. I've been waiting all, all year to get in the tree. I'm going. Well, the wind's not quite right. I'm going anyway. I, you know, i got to go. It's Saturday. I'm going. Well, you can go and blow him out and not see him again for three months and have your neighbor kill him three weeks later. And that's a lot of times is just the reality of what happens is that we just don't have the discipline to wait for better conditions. So would you typically recommend, let's say we've got someone who's hunting in that type of scenario you just listed there, where he's not getting daylight trial camera pictures of a buck. He's not seeing daylight activity from a buck yet because 
of that situation, right? He's This buck doesn't need to travel very far. Maybe he hasn't been overly pressured yet, but he just doesn't have that incentive to move during daylight. So that's our scenario. Mm-hmm. Would you tell this person, or I guess would you typically think this type of person should wait until the rut, or are there some things that they should do now to try to still make it happen? I would... I would go to a separate area and try to get my doe shot. That's the first thing I would focus on. If I can't get him shot in the, in the setup that I feel is most likely to produce an opportunity in the first time or two or three that I sit there during the earliest days of season and catch him unaware and possibly get him shot before he knows the season is even open, if I can't do that, I'm going to pull out. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to try to get my doe shot or to be honest with you, for many of us, it's I'm going to try to get all my jobs done around the house so that when prime time gets here, I can spend more time in the woods. And I do think that's some of it's a, a, a function of time allocation. We all have limited time, even those of us who hunt, quote, for a living. We all still have other things in our life we have to do. And the worst thing in the world is to put all those off, hunt hard in October, mess up your spot, then come the 5th of November and realize you're behind on your honeydews and then have to spend three days in prime time catching up so that you can then go and chase deer again. I mean, I think sometimes we just don't have a really good game plan. And because of that, it's not to say people don't kill big ones in October, early to mid-October. They certainly do. I mean, there's been some big ones killed the last you know couple of weeks all, all over North America. Uh, but the number of people hunting relative to the number of big deer opportunities is, is a pretty skewed ratio. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's hard to argue with that. It's definitely possible, but at the same time, it's challenging. At least from everything I've ever learned and from all the different people we've talked to on this podcast, I think, you know, one of the big things it comes down to is, you know, there's certain types of conditions or certain little weak spots in a big buck's armor of sorts that you can take advantage of if you have that perfect scenario for it. But eight times out of 10, you know, either you don't have that scenario or you don't have all the intel that you need to make a smart move or whatever it might be, eight times out of 10, usually the smarter bet is to wait until those right conditions. Because to your point, when you start pushing in there and doing things before the time's right, before the scenario is right, you're just going to muck things up before you ever even had a chance. And then when you might have had that better chance, maybe in late October or November or whatever it is, or when the cold front comes through, you know, now you can't take advantage of that because you've already educated that buck. And that's a tough lesson to learn. Yeah, it's difficult. And and I could never blame anybody for saying, look, I just flat enjoy being in the deer woods. And even if it messes up my chances of killing the big one, I want to go. Well, how on earth could you tell a guy that you shouldn't go? I mean, right. I, I, you know, deer, deer hunting is supposed to be, to be fun. And if that's fun to him and he's legal and safe and ethical, then good for him. I mean, I hope he shoots one, but if he doesn't shoot one, I at least know that he was out there, you know, exercising his right and the privilege to go hunting and be part of the American hunting force that uh, we're all so proud of. So I don't really and it's hard for me to bash that guy and say, oh, you're crazy or you're not being smart. I mean, I would like for him to see the payoff for doing things a little different way, but I'm never going to bash him because he made a, quote, poor decision and, and educated the buck that he might have otherwise shot. I mean, that's that's his call, not mine. Yeah. Now, given your 
position, you know, with North American Whitetail Magazine, you get to hear a lot of different perspectives from other writers and hunters who do sometimes push it a little bit more in October and have success. Are there any, I don't know, any standout tactics that you have seen from some of these other guys who do like to focus on October that either intrigue you the most or that you think have the most merit? Well, I think if if think if you got control of your land and habitat to where you can have, number one, a very uh, relaxed deer herd. Uh, you know, and, and, and go out of your way to minimize the pressure on those deer so that you can wait for that little cool front that really gets the buck a little bit more active, you know, a little earlier in the evening coming out to the plot. And you've got a plot set up so that you've got places between bedding and, and feeding where you can get him shot. I do feel like if you can if you can almost landscape your property or your hunting area that way or or put the scouting in to find those situations that clearly that's going to give you an advantage over the guy who's just randomly going to go say well there's acorns falling here and there's some deer pellets I think I'll sit here um yeah he might kill the mini world record but the chances are better for the guy who's actually got a plan as we all know so so I look at it and say yeah if you can find that you know, a place where deer are pushed a little bit more into a travel pattern because of topography, changing crops, possibly, um, you know, you've got isolated food sources as opposed to widespread food sources. If you can find those little honey holes, if you will, and really be super careful with the wind, be be very disciplined about how you go in there and get out of them and, and hunt them lightly, but give yourself a chance on the periphery of that deer's travel pattern to get a crack at him if he makes a little bit of a slip up one afternoon or one morning. But, you know, day in, day out, you're just going to have to be very disciplined in how you approach it because, um, again, it's it only takes one slip up on our part, and the buck is totally educated to at least that particular hunting setup. Now, he might continue to roam widely across the area and get shot by somebody else, but, but his knowledge of that one particular ambush site that you've set up it, we want to minimize that and we, and, you know, and whether it's, you know, because we've hunted it sloppily, you know, we, we went in there wrong wind or we threw trash on the ground or we didn't, you know, we didn't, we went in in bad conditions and we ba- basically left a lot of, it, of, of, of telltale knowledge for him to pick up by our presence. Even if he didn't come by the stand when we were in it, he still knows we were there. And, what we got to just continue to go back to is minimizing the possibility of that. But I do think that the guys that are most successful most often are really just crowding in as far as they dare on the downwind side of a travel pattern that they have reason to know is there either because of sightings, you know, sign, uh, or more often anymore is just simply trail camera images that tell them that they're on the right pattern. But you still have to be careful about how you hunt it. Yeah. And speaking of that whole topic of, you know, just being particularly careful about everything related to hunting pressure, um, you might remember I actually wrote an article for North American Whitetail a few years ago about how I personally have decided to minimize almost completely the number of mornings that I hunt during, you know, early to mid-October. Um, and it's a long-running discussion that me and Dan here have with between ourselves and other guests and stuff. And I guess I'm just curious about your take on that. What's your perspective on morning hunts in early to mid-October? Well, I have shot some some bucks in the morning in, let's say, the third week of October, 20th, 25th, somewhere in there, where, of course, the later you get in October, the generally speaking, the better things are going to get. 
Um, I have had a little bit of luck on some bucks, some early bucks starting to cruise small isolated food plots and sometimes even coming into a, to a buck decoy. And I've had, I've had pretty good luck doing that. I do feel like that kind of minimizes my disturbance of any real security cover because I'm out there on the edge of an opening and, uh, you know, I can hunt that way. And if he, if he comes out and he sees a decoy and he's responsive to it, then he comes around, and gives me a shot is the right buck, then, then I'm golden. If it doesn't happen, I've not, I've at least not disturbed any significant security cover in the process. I can back out, take my decoy and go home. So I have seen, you know, sometimes you tend to think, oh, I've got to be back in the deepest, darkest swamp to kill one, you know, during this lull period. Maybe not, but you do need a little bit of weather or something to get that buck a little bit more interested in what's about to come in November. And if you get that set of conditions, I do think that's a great time to get to, to get a shot at, you know, at some relatively mature buck. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Okay, next we're going to get a very different set of ideas from Dan Infault. You know him from The Hunting Beast, you know him as an aggressive public land and DIY bow hunter. Here are some ideas from Dan. I want to take a step back here real quick to get started um, because 
you know, this time frame, this middle portion of October, lots of people refer to that as the October lull. So me and Dallas were just talking about this, our different opinions on this, but I, w- I want to hear from you, Dan. Is the October lull, is that fact or fiction? You know, um, I would say it's, it's, it's somewhat fact. Um, somewhere in the middle there. I mean, you do get less movement in daylight um, during this time frame. I think it's starting to pick up now. But during that early October frame, I think that you do get less movement. But I don't see a lull because I'm pushing those dead areas. I'm still getting them, you know, in daylight, seeing them. But I'm definitely seeing them closer to the edge of darkness. And a lot of the bucks I am seeing that are good bucks um, during that time frame are only getting 75, 100 yards from those beds. So I think where most people are seeing a lull is they're sitting over food plots or food sources, you know, or acorn patches or stuff like that, and they're seeing less movement in daylight. Um, I'm still seeing the same amount of movement at that time frame. I'm just seeing it later in the day. Okay. And what do you think is causing that decline in deer activity that most people are seeing? You said that these deer are staying closer to their bedding areas later. Um, I've got some different ideas, and there's been a number of different hypotheses you know, thrown around there about what caused that later movement or less um, decreased movement. But what do you think is causing that, Dan? For me, it would have to be a guess. Um, I think some of it has to do with the heat and the fact that they're changing their coats to winter, winter coats because it almost seems like when that cold hits, you know, that, that period of time in the evening when it gets cold is when they get up and move. But uh, that's pure speculation on my part. Okay. And maybe, I imagine maybe some hunting pressure might cause that too from a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But, you know, I hunt some spots that uh, don't get much pressure and I still see it. And huh. I hunt places with pressure and I see it. So, Okay. Interesting. So then that being the case, you know, this time frame, you said that you're still seeing that activity because you're pushing it close to beds and close to bedding mm-hmm. areas. Um, and I think you know, that is I'm sure something I want to talk about here. And are there any other major tactics other than that that you're employing this time of year to get close to those deer, or does your entire strategy revolve around those bedding areas at this time? I would never say my entire strategy revolves around any one thing. Um, but there's one tip I'd, I'd love to give your uh, listeners that they probably haven't heard before. Okay. And this is going to sound a little weird to you, but I, I guarantee it's true. Um, Right around the first week of October to the second week, um, maple leaves, when they first start turning orange and dropping, when they just first start dropping, they have a bigger draw than acorns. Um, hmm. But you have to have isolated uh, maple leaves. Them things hit them like you wouldn't believe. I think they get a sweetness or something when they first die, when they start dropping. Um, but they're a huge draw. I first learned that from uh, Andre Diacristo. Uh, he told me that when we were on a hunt one time and, and I really paid attention after that and he was dead on. I, I observed it many times and moving to these, uh, little maple patches. Wow. That's definitely something I never thought about. I got a maple, I got a maple tree in my backyard. Maybe I should hunt in my backyard tonight. <laughs> <laughs> How close is the bedding? <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably a couple miles. <laughs> So, so that said, then let's, let's cycle back to the bedding area topic, because I think there's a whole lot we could talk about in this. And we talked a little bit about it back in March or April, whenever we chatted with you the first time, Dan. Um, but I guess let's start at the highest level and then just keep on diving deeper. 
Can you give us a high level overview of, of what you're doing when it comes to hunting these bedding areas? When you're heading in for a hunt, what are you thinking about? Why are you doing it? And, and how are you setting up? Well, there's two different ways I, I go in on these bedding areas. And, and the best way is if I've pre-scouted it and I've gone in and say January, February, and really taken a good look at this bedding area and looked at how the deer stage and look from their perspective at how to set up. That's the best scenario. Because then when I go back and I go in for the first time and hunt, I've got a really good shot at killing them. Uh, the second scenario is I haven't hunted the area. And like this last buck, I'm going in and I'm guessing on the bedding. I think I do a little better than other people on that aspect because I've been looking at these beds for so many years that I have a good good knack of reading them, if you know, if you know what I mean. But uh, those are my two main scenarios is guessing the bedding or knowing it from previous scouting. Okay. And so how about we go, let's talk about that first scenario. And then I, I really want to dive into that second scenario too, because that might apply to people at this point who, who maybe are just trying to figure this out as they go. But for someone who already has these bedding areas scouted out, let's say like you, you already have a whole lot of different bedding areas across numerous properties that you plan on hunting. You know, how do you have those prepared? Do you have stands hung up? Or I think from what I remember, lots of times you're setting up on the, on the go, but can you talk to us about how you are choosing which ones you're going to hunt on a given day? And then, you know, when you're heading in and, and what do those setups look like? Okay. Well, you know, some of the bedding areas are based on, um, uh, like, uh, acorns, you know, or corn or, or some food source, and if you know that food source and knowing that food source is available, you know when to hunt it. Um, some, you know, I don't have any idea why they're bedding there, except for that it's a good bedding area, and I got to kind of, you know, go in and check it out, and maybe give it a hunt in September, maybe a hunt later in October, maybe a rut hunt, and try and figure out when they're there. Are you using wind direction at all to help make that decision? Is that uh, from what? Oh, I'm- absolutely. Um, but but there's a, there's one thing about wind is is it's more important on uh, the hill country direction wise than it is in swamps. A lot of times in swamps they bet on these points and and fingers and uh, little patches, um, not based on the wind at all. So you can have the wind in your face and and really do well. But in like hill country, um, they bet on that leeward side on the points and such. So you got to play that wind a little bit. You got to play that off wind um, if you're going to get them on the um, uphill side which is a lot better than hunting downhill because then you get the thermals busting you. So yeah, wind, wind plays a huge direction. Uh, I mean, a, a huge wind plays a, a huge factor in, um, in choosing where you're going to hunt and, and why, and more, more so than just keeping your wind from getting to the buck. In a lot of cases, they bed in a certain position because of the wind. Can you tell us a little more about that last part there? You know, why they bed in a certain area. Um, there's a lot of different different opinions on this. You know, bucks will enter a bedding area with the wind in their face or they'll bed with the wind over their backs or they'll only leave with the wind in their face. You know, what, what's your take on that, on how deer use the wind when choosing where to bed and how to leave their bed and, and approach the bed in the first place? That's a good question and one I hear a lot. And as you can imagine, I've observed a lot of deer going in and out of beds. And the overall majority of them come into a bed by circling around and J-hooking and smelling from downwind. They just don't feel comfortable going in there for some reason without the wind in their face. Um, so it makes it kind of difficult to hunt those bedding areas in the morning because you kind of get, they kind of come in from a different direction each time. So those trails you see 
um, at the veterinarians. They usually do deer leaving the beds, not going into them, because they come in kind of weird. Um, but when they when they leave those beds, I don't see any relation to the wind whatsoever. What I do see is if the wind is not in their favor, if it's to their back, they come out a little more cautiously and a little slower, but they still go the direction they want to go. Hmm. So then when you're choosing where to set up, you're not thinking about where will a buck want to go in the evening. You know, you're hunting in the evening, so you're not thinking about where is he going to want to go based on the wind. You're just thinking about this morning, what was the wind direction that would cause him to to move into this bedding area? Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's true to a degree. I mean, like I said, a lot of the swamp bedding is regardless of the wind. Yeah. But if it is a wind-specific bed, yeah, I'm certainly thinking about you know, if he's better there in the morning. However, um, I've seen bucks get up and move when the wind changes during the day. So that can have a bearing on it too. So you might want to be set up on where the wind is now or where it's going to be in the evening. Okay. I got a question for you. You mentioned earlier that you're not hunting mornings this type of time of year. Can you uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why you're not uh, spending time in the stand in the mornings? Well, um, as you can imagine, I've been hunting these beds like this for many, many, many years. Um, you know what I've found is when I go into these bedding areas in the morning, um, kicking the bucks out of the bedding areas um, before daylight, they're already bedded. Um, what I see during daylight in the mornings at this time of the year, it's usually immature bucks or does. The mature ones are already bedded. Okay. All right. It, now, is, is that the same for your marsh and your hill country? Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. See, now me, on the other hand, I love hunting mornings. and mm-hmm. um, But, like, unlike you, I'm not a, I'm not a huge bed hunter, right? I, I like hunting transitions between food and bedding in the mornings. And, um, that's where I, that's where I had my success this, this weekend anyway, although I didn't kill, I still uh, had an encounter with a a pretty good deer. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot, uh, Dallas. Um, and I think maybe again, I probably already mentioned this on previous episodes, but I I continue to wonder if this is again, because of the differences in pressure between, you know, what Dan might be hunting and what I might be hunting in Michigan or Wisconsin versus, you know, the properties that you're there on Iowa. Um, I don't know. I just, I I got a comment on this. Um, you you know, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Andre Diaquisto, uh, has shot in a lot of, a lot of big bucks. Matter of fact, he's, if you put them in the books, he has more Boone and Crockett's with a bow than anybody in the world. And I noticed that he's killing a lot of those big bucks um, in the mornings. He loves hunting mornings. And uh, I was interviewing him for something I was doing. And uh, I said, you know, i got to ask you, how do you keep killing these bucks in the morning? And I told him the problem I had, that I'm kicking them out of their beds and stuff. And he said to me, he says, Dan, i got the same issue. But look at the dates when I killed those deer. He says, I'm waiting for the moon to be overhead before I go in there. He says, and when I, when I have a moon overhead in the morning, uh, within the first hour of daylight, he says, those bucks get back to those beds at gray light, and I'm able to shoot them in daylight. I'm really glad you brought this up, Dan. So, so they're coming back to the beds later than they normally would? With the moon overhead, yeah. Okay. Or underfoot. Okay. So can you... He, he seems to think that the overhead moon has a little more influence than the, the underfoot one. 
I'm not so sure. Can you can you go into this a little more for people that maybe might not be as familiar with underfoot, overhead, or all these different moon um, timeframes? I know you you publish something on your website uh, these moon dates that tend to lead to earlier movement in the evening or later movement movement in the morning. Um, could you just explain that in detail for us? Because the whole moon thing is something that so many people have questions about and so many people don't really understand. So can you give us your whole kind of one on one on that piece? Okay, you know I don't understand why they do it but I have seen plenty of evidence that I know that it goes on and there's more movement when the, when the moon is straight up or straight down, there's more movement with buck movement. And when that happens, um, in the last couple hours of daylight or the first couple hours of daylight, you get more buck movement, uh, or more deer movement overall. It's hard to notice, um, on the public lands I hunt, but uh, the few times I was over by like, uh, Andre's hunting managed land, um, you could set your watch to what time the food plots would fill up based on the moon chart. And it was amazing uh, to just sit back and, and watch that. Um, the way Where I got my information from is Jeff Murray. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but his, his uh, family still puts out a chart. I think the chart's like uh, five or ten bucks. They sell it on um, uh, his website, which if you just search... Uh, Jeff Murray moon guide, you'll find it. Um, I don't believe all of his principles about where to hunt and stuff like that. Obviously I'm pushing bedding areas and he's talking about when they're in food sources and stuff based on the moon. My thing is the movement based on the moon overhead or underfoot. And so this chart, what is this, what is this chart showing? Is it showing you, it's just telling you the times? It shows you what, the time frames that the moon is overhead and underfoot, the dates. And, uh, and it gives you, he has like a hot thing on there for time frame. But I think you can get that information free, too. You can just search it online, and and uh, there's different charts different people have out there. But but some other people have uh, different ideas on, on uh, moon charts and the moon position and stuff, too. So you can get kind of confused if you start searching it um, yeah. in other sources. And, and you, you've... Uh put some of that on the hunting beast, right? If I, if I, uh, found that, could I link to that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's stickied up on the top of the, uh, deer hunting, uh, forum. Um, I put down the, the dates and times that, uh, I feel are the best for, for daylight movement. Okay. I also put down based on the moon when the, um, rut cruise time should be. Okay. Interesting. And so, uh, again, Based on these charts and the, the the rising and setting of the moon, this is if you see one of these charts or one of these time periods falling within that same time period of first light or last light, those are times when you might get that earlier or later movement. And so that might be a time, even in the middle of October, to push into one of these, pushing closer to a bedding area or one of these hotter spots because you might just get a couple extra minutes of movement, right? Correct. And and, and really, I mean, if you can get ten extra minutes of movement, they can get a long ways in ten minutes. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So now how about our, our second scenario that you mentioned a while back, Dan, which was if you haven't pre-scouted an area, um, let's say there's a guy listening to the show right now 
and he's thinking to himself, okay, I'm, I'm having horrible success right now. I've been hunting field edges and I'm not seeing any bucks, but I hear Dan is telling me to try to push closer, closer to some of these betting areas. For that guy that hasn't done the preseason scouting, all he has is, you know, what he knows about his property and, and some maps. How can he go about finding these betting areas and then, you know, making those moves? How are you doing that and what should he know, this other guy? Okay, you, you know, that's real terrain specific, but um, say it's uh uh, a marsh, a cattail marsh. That's, to me, that's the easiest thing to read because um, you can see it visually so easy. If you looked at a cattail marsh and you, and you look at uh, the uh, timber edge where it meets the cattails, you know, you got this straight edge of trees meeting cattails. And somewhere along that line, you're going to see like a, a finger of trees go out or a point. Right at that the point, the tip of that finger, I guarantee you there's going to be a good buck bed. You see these little uh, islands, they got little uh, brushy points that come off them. Guarantee you at the tip of that, there'll be a buck bed. And when you look at a swamp and you start filling that whole thing with timber, you're going to see the same stuff. It's just harder to visualize uh, because you're going to be able to see the different colors, the different types of trees. The hardwoods look different than the, the tamaracks and such, right? And it's going to be the same thing. You're looking at those island tips. You're looking at those those changes in the contour, that straight line along a hard transition of thick meets, you know, open. And when you start hunting the public land, you've got to start looking for the remoter transitions um, so that you're not sitting there hunting where everybody else is hunting because people will follow those transitions to like a trail. So you got to try to find the remote ones that people don't go to. Um, now, if you get into hilly terrain, then you're looking for points and fingers and, and stuff like that. Okay. And it's, you're using a topo. So I've got my topo and I've found a finger coming off a ridge or maybe if I'm in a marshy area, I've found that finger of timber or of high ground that pushes into the swamp. Um, am I just, just going to find that spot in the map, decide, okay, I know that there's a hot food source on the other side of this, so there's a decent chance he might be bedding out in that finger. I'm going to try to get as close as I can and set up on, on any random day or maybe on one of those moon days, or is there anything else that he needs to be thinking of? about before moving in to try to hunt that bed he thinks is there? Well, what I do is if I'm pretty sure there's going to be a bed there or I think there's going to be a bed, I just hunt it. If I can get within 100 yards, I'm sure I can get a, 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 a chance at that buck in daylight. If there's a spot where I can't get that close to that buck, can't get close enough to that bed, i got to hang back like 200 yards or so, that's the spot I save for that moon day or that cold front that comes in and gets them to move a little earlier. Um, those are the days I save for that. Otherwise, um, I'm hunting those spots one after another, pushing as close as I can. Because you're, you know, hunting this way, you're not going to see bucks every time. They got different bedding areas; they're all over the place. And what I'm doing is I'm trying each bedding area. And once you're sensing there, they're going to stay out of there for a while. So it makes the other bedding areas better. So you just keep, you know, hopping around and, and hitting these things, and you're going to have a few that don't pay off. And in uh, the more of an amateur you are at it, the more you're going to have some that don't pay off. And, you know, and you just got to keep hitting it until it works. And the hardest part for a guy um, who doesn't hunt like this is keeping up his confidence level. Because, like I said, even I, you know, I'll go five, six hunts without seeing a deer. You know, but I guarantee you, in the long run, I'm seeing more big bucks than most guys. All right, now we're going to bounce over to Bernie Berenger. He's the author of The Freelance Bow Hunter written for many different magazines, and he's got some different ideas on October. 
can you share with us what your progression looks like throughout the month of October um, and how your hunting strategy is typically changing as we progress? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's interesting how so many people really think the, uh, the month of October is just a time to just wait, <laughs> you know, forget it. Let's just wait for November. And, um, you know, the first week in October can be a really tough time because the, uh, um, the, the bachelor groups are broken up and, um, you know, the patterns, uh, we're having a hard time figuring out where the deer are because, um, uh, you know, all throughout the month of September, these deer are sort of just changing in their food sources and their patterns. And, um, you know, you'll be watching on your cameras and you'll see these deer in the fields in the evenings and stuff like that, starting in late August and right through the middle of September. And all of a sudden they're gone, you know, and then, you know, the end of September, first of October, all of a sudden you've got a buck on your camera and you go, I haven't seen where'd this come from. Well, he came from somebody else, you know, they're wondering where he is. And, uh, so the first week in October, it's pretty much all about the food. Um, if you can find, um, acorns, hazelnuts, stuff like that in my area, that's kind of what they're eating on. If there's still some dry, some corn in the field, um, you know, they're, they're still in somewhat of a pattern. It's just that you'll have to find these deer again and, and you have to move quickly because the patterns are changing. Um, I like hunting October because, um, the first week in October, especially the weather's nice. And usually here we've had a frost, so we don't have much about mosquitoes and stuff like that. But then, uh, um, as the second week of October, uh, wears on, then the, it's getting colder. So the deer are seeking out the high carb foods like corn and stuff like that. When the, if there's standing corns left that they're, that's a real magnet for them. Um, sometimes they're picking up corn that's been harvested and so forth. And, um, so that the, you know, second week is not a bad time to hunt either. And, um, by the third week in October, now you're starting to see a lot of scrapes and rubs that are pretty active rather than, you know, there's, there's, you start seeing scrapes and rubs, you know, at the end of August and even as the velvet comes off, but by the third week in October, the bucks are really paying attention to them. And, um, so that's when I start paying attention to them too. And also that's when the effectiveness of calling and rattling is starting to work. Um, and then by the fourth week in October, then, you know, calling and rattling is at its peak. That's, that's, it's the best last week in October, first week in November. I would even give the edge to the last week in October for, uh, for calling and rattling. Um, you know, that's the best time of the year also to hunt scrapes and rubs because the bucks are visiting them consistently. And, um, you know, something, another issue with, uh, um, with scrapes that a lot of people don't think about and, um, the, you know, and, it's kind of complicated, but you know, there's been several studies done that bucks, um, don't visit scrapes in the daylight. I mean, you've probably read these scientists. Mm -hmm. What they do is they put a camera at the scrape and they, and then they say, well, we got, you know, 80 some percent of the pictures of mature bucks that we got were at night. Yeah. And, um, well, one thing that they, that they're not noticing about this is the fact that they're only putting a camera right at the scrape and, they, so bucks are checking scrapes during the day at this time, but they're just not walking right into them because most of your scrapes, if you think about it, they're on a power line cut or a road, two track, 
on the edge of a field or something like that. And these mature bucks don't like to expose themselves to open areas during the daylight. So they'll, whenever can they can, they'll stay 30, 40 yards downwind of the scrape in cover, and they'll just check the scrape without walking right up to it. Now, if there's something good in the scrape, if there's fresh doe pee or if you use a good lure or something like that, um, you can, uh, you know, you can hunt right over these scrapes and bring these bucks right in. But, um, so don't completely discount hunting scrapes during the daylight because there's that last week in October, in fact, Halloween's kind of famous for, uh, you know, for killing bucks over sign. So, so at that time period is, do you prioritize scrapes so much that during that last week of October, that's, that's one of the main areas that you're actually hunting over is specifically in a spot because of a scrape. Yeah. I'm looking for areas that are all torn up and, uh, I'm, you know, by the last week in October, I'm not spending a lot of time worrying about beds and food and stuff like that. Um, you know, I'm looking for sign that, that those bucks, you know, the testosterone's rising. They're going to be checking those scrapes and, and, uh, tear. If you find an area that's got six or eight scrapes and a bunch of rubs and stuff like that, it's, it's definitely worth spending the afternoon there during that last week in October. So one of the things that I feel like a lot of people do talk about when, when we're on this topic of scrapes is that the places that you will see that daytime activity are usually going to be the scrapes. Some people refer to like primary scrape areas or something like that being these places back in the cover. So the scrapes that are on the field edge, don't focus on those. Try to find these areas uh, that are all tore up, but the ones that are back secluded somewhat. Is that the way you're looking at things too? Or are you even taking advantage of field edge scrapes because you still think that they're, they're coming downwind of it 30 or 40 yards into the cover, checking on those field edge scrapes somewhere? Yeah. I, if the wind is right, that you can get downwind of one of those scrapes that's on a field edge. Um, they're good places to hunt. You know, if you can have the wind blowing from you or from the scrape to you and, uh, getting a tree up there, the bucks will, they'll check them and then they'll make a hook. They'll kind of circle around in a half circle. If, the, if they smell something they like, then they'll kind of circle around and try to quarter into the wind with the, you know, kind of the wind on the flat of their face. So it's in one nostril basically, and they'll approach the scrapes that way. So to keep that in mind, uh, but I, I, I would say if I had to choose between the two, I'd take a, an area back in the cover more that's t- closer to the bedding area. That's all torn up. Cause you're more likely to encounter them in the daylight if you're closer to the bedding area. But uh, these, these areas where they're all tore up on the edge of the fields, they shouldn't be completely overlooked. All right. Fair enough. Have you seen, have you seen, you know, for, from all your years uh, of being in a tree stand and, and just watching deer movement in general, is there a time where, you know, we're talking about hunting scrapes right now where these deer really start to get up on their feet in daylight, uh, whether that's getting up early or coming to back to bed late? Um, yeah, I, I would say the last week in October, uh, here in the upper Midwest, uh, is when you start seeing that. And then by, uh, you know, the first week in November, then you start seeing more of the, uh, chasing more so, you know, and so then the scrapes will work, but they're, you know, you can concentrate more on the doe bedding areas and where the does are feeding in the evening because the bucks are going to be. Uh, they're starting, those are starting to smell pretty good, you know, around the 1st of November. So those bucks are going to be sniffing them out. 
We, but yeah, if you to answer your question, the last week in October, absolutely. Dan, were you were you asking about like time of year, or were you more you were well, asking more like yeah. other factors that change it? Well, not necessarily factors. I mean, in regards to hunting actual scrapes, right? Now, that's something that I don't do a lot of. So, be, just because I don't, for me, I'm not seeing a lot of enough movement during the daylight, you know, I'm not necessarily going right into the bedroom in late October. Maybe if there is a, um, maybe if there is a, uh, I guess a cold front coming, uh, for, for an evening hunt, I guess, but I do like hunting, uh, late October, the morning hunt back in a bedroom where the deer might be coming later back to that bedroom or maybe scent checking. So I guess my question was, um, there, you know, what time of year, whether it's like the 24th, 28th, you know, 29th, are, are you typically seeing these deer not chasing yet, but getting up on their feet a little earlier because, you know, there's that smell and that there's that smell in the air, like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta start getting ready. Gotcha. And I think, and I think think, Bernie, you you would go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I think your previous answer then answers that, right? That last week in October? Yeah, yeah, and I, I would like to mention the mornings too, though. That's a, um, I would say the closer you get to November, the better it gets. But as far as the morning goes, when they're primarily on a feeding to bedding pattern, then they'll trickle back in, um, and it's hard to it's hard to hunt mornings on feeding to bedding patterns without bumping deer, particularly if they're hunting in open fields and you know, they'll start trickling back in well before daylight sometimes. And, and, uh, you know, you might not encounter the deer and you can, it's, it's hard not to, uh, spook them, um, or, you know, intrude, but the closer you get to November 1st, the more the bucks stay out a little later. So that's kind of an answer to your question that, uh, the effectiveness of morning hunting, um, gets better as you approach the first of November. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription 
and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. All right, moving on. Here is a few bits from Jeff Sturgis. He's the founder of Whitetail Habitat Solutions, the author of a number of great books. He's got the Whitetail Habitat Solutions YouTube channel and a lot of interesting ideas in particular about how he looks at weather during the month of October. And we're going to drop into a section here where Jeff and I were talking. It was right around October 20th, 21st, somewhere in that ballpark. And I asked him to walk through the upcoming forecast. This is back in 2000. 15, I think I want him to walk through the upcoming forecast and how that would impact how he hunts. So keep this in mind. He's talking through a hypothetical set of weather factors for the last 10 days or so of October and how that would influence his strategy. So here we go. So, yes, definitely. so, yep. so then here's the next thing I'm curious about because right. I think we hear about this type of thing, paying attention to cold fronts, looking for those changes in wind speed. Like it seems like you like when it calms down a little bit and the high pressure days, we hear about a lot of these things, but sometimes it's hard to understand how to actually take that and put it into play. So something I've seen you do the last couple of weeks is you're putting out this weekly forecast where you talk about what the weather is going to look like in the coming week or two weeks. And then which of those days coming up are high value sits and what that means for you as a hunter. Could you possibly walk us through as, as best as you can remember right now what that looks like for the coming days here um, as kind sure. of an example? Um, and this, yeah. and for, for context, this podcast will be going live on this Thursday. So maybe okay. if, you, if you remember what the forecast looks, could you talk to us about what you're looking at with this upcoming weather and how you implement some of the things that we've just talked about? Yes, yeah, and... I have that, that weather forecast burned in my head pretty well. But, and I, this time when I pulled up for La Crosse, Wisconsin, last time I pulled up Chicago, I was actually thinking about flipping over to the Detroit area or Lansing or Ann Arbor uh, next week. Like but that. regardless, <laughs> so that'll be coming your way anyway. Perfect. But um, the, uh, the big thing with um, this week is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we had three days in the low 70s to mid-70s, at least around here in this area. And really, across the same general line, uh, moving east and west, there's not that much difference. There's going to be a lag time of about a day, I would say, from here in lower Michigan and then another day over to northern Pennsylvania and New York. Um, but really, you know, things happening, for the most part, the weather's moving west to east or west to northeast. So that being said, this week we had those three warmer days, and then here we have about a 10-degree drop on Thursday. And so those three warm days, to me, really helped set up uh, that Thursday drop. And you could say, you know, if it was four or five days of, of poor weather or warm weather, um, if it was a, you know, if you had a monster storm moving through on Wednesday, 
that might make a really big difference, but still a pretty quality, a high quality day. And especially that's going to be uh, the 22nd of October. And that happens to be the date that I've shot a couple really nice bucks, five and six year old bucks, had a really nice opportunity on another uh, nice buck on the 20th, on the 27th, another five, six year old. So we're starting to get into that time where I'm, I'm really getting pumped. I think I talked to you about that this week too, Mark. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. big buck on cam and, and, uh, on the cameras and it's, it's getting exciting. Um, then on Friday, what's really cool is, um, so Thursday showing a, let's say a low of 39 and a high of 60. Uh, let's say on Wednesday it was a high of 71. So there's 11 degree temperature drop. Um, I believe the, the morning temperature, now, it's, when you look at a weather forecast, and, you know, maybe some of the listeners don't realize this, but when you see the low for Thursday, that's actually Friday morning's uh, temperature. And so it's a little deceiving because if you look at Wednesday, the low was 49. That's actually Thursday morning. So Friday morning has a forecasted low of actually 39. And so 10-degree temperature drop from morning to morning, I'm looking for that from the, you know, daytime highs to daytime high. And in some areas, they're actually calling for a little bit of uh, rain or precipitation, maybe some higher winds on uh, Wednesday to Thursday. Um, even looking into Chicago, I think the, the high-quality days of Friday there, where that will help to actually enhance the, uh, the value of that day. And going forward, I think the, uh, there's a little bit of moisture on that Friday-Saturday time and another little bit of drop on, uh, on Sunday. And so... I'm looking at, like, if I was planning out this week, you know, I'd really want to uh, make a priority of hunting this Thursday, Friday, because of the first couple of days after the front, there's good quality temperature drops, a little bit of weather to serve to set that up, and then there's a little bit of a bump where you have some, a little bit of a warmer day, um, some inclement weather, rain, and then clearing and high pressure on Sunday. So if I'm planning my sits, I might spend uh, Saturday with family, um, it looks like Friday night's going to be pretty wet. Not to say that, that you couldn't shoot a mature buck in the rain, certainly, but if I'm planning my sits and I have four or five that I really want to get out, I'm going to, I'm actually planning, uh, Friday or Thursday morning, Thursday night, Friday morning, and then I'll sit on Sunday as well. So, and, and then looking ahead, and this is, you know, looking out a week and a half, um, the, uh, there's a really nice drop. I think it's next Saturday or Sunday where you have pretty steady weather, it looks like, next week, and then a major drop around Halloween. So it's still a little ways out. The window of air is probably, you know, really high, uh, probably, uh, you know, 10%, uh, 15% accuracy rating. But at the same time, I'm really looking forward to that next drop right around Halloween, which is prime time in the northern part of the uh, Midwest. Absolutely. That's going to be a great time to be in the tree. Now, Looking though at this most or this most kind of upcoming weekend, so you talked about that cold front hitting today. That the air, the day that this podcast is going live is Thursday. So that cold front's hitting Thursday. You said Thursday, Friday could be good sits, and then maybe again Sunday. Um, this time of year, the twenty, you know, twenty fourth, twenty fifth, twenty sixth, give or take, around this part of the year in October. How are you approaching those hunts at this time to take advantage of this good condition? These good conditions. Where are you hunting? What are you thinking about when choosing those stand sites? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm looking at total pre-rut hunting. And what I mean by that is really the bucks to me are not moving that far. And I have to excuse me if this is a, a poor example or a crash example, but, um, you know, it'd be like there's 
30 girls in a nightclub bar or whatever, and there's 10 guys going in, and and uh, <laughs> that's a time where it's, uh, you know, pretty easy to meet a girl. Um, and that's to me Unless the you're Dan. Unless you're hey, Dan. <laughs> he struggles. That's funny you say that because I yeah. used the same analogy a while ago. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I used that with a client, and he said, I don't see anything wrong with that example. But anyways, <laughs> um, that, uh, it's, it's kind of like that for the pre-rut. You know, these big boys already have their fall range established. They have where they want to eat, where they want to stay during the day, their bedding areas, and they have some does nearby. And it's not that they have to have those does, just the way it works. They, the does are right next to that high-quality food, uh, good cover, and then those bucks are, are far behind them. So they're already established, and when one of those does starts to get, get a little little uh, ruddy, then uh, it's those bucks, they you know, you can pick up on that. There's a lot of does that will start coming into heat. And those first few does are pretty easy for them to find. And they don't really need to move around too much. And so um, at the same time, right before that happens, they're going to become more active. And I know just in the last three days, I've had a lot of scrapes pop up in and around the properties where I hunt. And that's not even going in the woods much. That's just, just on the exterior edges. So what I'm looking at is, for one, those bucks aren't going to move a long ways. So I'm not really, I'm not going to sit all day. Um, I just don't think there's a lot of value in sitting here in the middle of the day unless you have to get into an area that you can't get out until after dark. Um, so I'm placing a high priority in the morning near bedding areas. So I'm trying to get within 100 to 150 yards of a mature buck's bedding area, knowing that his range might expand from an acre to 10 to 15 acres during the morning, especially when there's cooler temperatures. At the same time in the evening, if I sit in that bedding area, then it's going to be a pretty poor hunt the closer it gets to dark because that buck is then turning his attention towards the evening food sources, the social areas where all the does and the doe family groups are moving in the other bucks. And he wants to leave that bedding area and go to that food source. So if I'm still in that bedding area, then the closer it gets to dark, the less chance that I have seen a buck. So I find it best to prioritize my sits and, and increase that value by sitting in a morning area that relates to a bedding area and then an evening area that relates to a food source doesn't necessarily mean I'm sitting in the bedding area or in the food source, but I'm pretty close. So how so that's, that's more the pre-rut. So how are you choosing, you know, okay, again, we're, we're talking about how we're prioritizing, you know, different days. We've prioritized days, but then how do you prioritize a certain bedding area or a certain food source? Because I'm sure, you know, you're looking at your farm and you have done something to know, okay, I think there's bedding here. I think there's food here. But then the next question that naturally people are thinking through is, okay, I know I want to be by a bedding area in the morning, or I know I want to be by a good food source. Then they start saying, okay, which one? And so I think we've talked about trail cameras. We talk about scouting. We talk about sightings. What of all those, if any, or anything else are you using to then choose the the specific food source you're hunting in the evening? Well, I, I do love my trail cameras. And for one, it shows me if there's mature bucks on the property or not. It shows me when they come on the property, when they don't. It shows me if they're coming during the day or at night. Um, but at the same time, the direction they're coming from should give me some clue as to what bedding area they're choosing to stay at during the day. And so if I knew that a monster buck was hanging back out in this corner in a bedding area, then that would be my priority stand location where I'd want to go back into the edge of that bedding area, walk in the opposite direction from the food. So in the morning when I'm walking in the dark, I'm not going through the food source. I'm coming in from the exact opposite way, thinking that that buck is somewhere between that food and his bedding. He might already be in his bedding, but this time of year there's a lot of social activity taking place in the morning. They're making rub scrapes, chasing does. 
And so I have a lot more of a likelihood of sneaking into the backside of a bedding area waiting for a buck to come back to me at this time of the year than I do October 10th, for example, or maybe even October 15th. And so uh, what I'm also doing is there's a pretty good value sit in the evening too. And so I'm looking at if I'm going to, if I'm going to sit three times and I'm going to say hunt two mornings and one evening, where can I sit in the morning that I'm not potentially ruining that evening sit if I happen to bump a deer and vice versa. So I'm really thinking about my next two to three sets out and making sure that you're moving from point A to point B, and then they're also moving from point C to point B, and I'm not getting into both those lines or one of those lines and destroying it for that evening hunt. I'm saving another line of movement for, you know, the next morning or the next evening, and I'm trying to prioritize my sets that way so that I can maintain a high value and a fresh stand with each set. I also, in each area, uh, most of my really high-quality areas that I love to... Uh, really focus on i'll usually have two to three complementary stands and so one area i can think of particularly i just can't wait to hunt this weekend it'll be the first set it's a triangle of stands um the one i can hunt with southerly winds in the evening the other one i can hit with hunt with northerly winds all day either morning or evening and the other one has to be southwesterly winds to westerly winds in the morning and so it gives me a great complement of stands i can hunt just about any wind condition morning evening midday it doesn't really matter if i know there's a big buck up there which there, are, there always is then i can go into one of those stands and and uh, get a high quality set but after i sit in there that one time i'll probably skip over and hunt another set um you know for uh, for the next set or you know the following morning so are you ever looking at um an area uh, in a particular stand and and setting a morning and an evening or an evening and a morning to try to catch movement coming back and forth if, in fact, the wind is the same? Yeah, and there's a lot of times where, you know, when, when we're out in the hill country, you can cheat the wind a lot, um, which is different than the flatland. I mean, I lived in Michigan for 40, 42 years, so it's pretty flat there compared to, you know, out here. But that being said, if you can get away with hunting both those mornings, there's times where, um, let's say the, the total movement from where I think a buck bedding is to where I think he's really generally spending his evening and, and nighttime hours. Um, it, let's say it's 400 yards long, that movement, or 300 yards. Well, I might come in the opposite direction, get a good morning hunt, and then leave that same way. And then I'll flip around in the afternoon for a nice three to four hour sit, actually walk in through the food source, and get into my stand location and let my wind blow into a safe way. And so in that way, I'm hunting both ends of the movement. And if I feel that I got in non-invasively in the morning, I didn't, I didn't hear any spooks. I didn't uh, hear anything blowing at me while I was on stand. And I thought I got away with a good clean sit. Um, I, I will certainly uh, try that at times too. Are all your stands pre-hung then, or do you do, do you set up a lot of stands throughout the year? Yeah, most of my stands are pre-hung. Um, now, when we go down to Ohio and hunt on public land, we have a few that we set a couple weeks ago. Um, but at the same time, we have a lot of uh, trees that we've marked for uh, climbers. And so, and I do use climbers occasionally around here. Um, I like actually the comfort of a climber. I like the portability. I do not like the noise um, walking in with it. Um, you know, up here it already takes me 50 minutes to get to some of my stands walking up 400 feet in elevation. So to, to put a a climber on my back along with uh, the extra weight I have on my front, <laughs> then uh, it, it gets me pretty tired out by the time I'm up there. So 
um, I try to have those pre-hung stands um, cleaned out and uh, ready to go, and then I'll use a uh, climber when I need that uh, flexibility. You mentioned that when you're setting up for those morning sets at this time of year, you like to be, I think you'd said, like 100 to 150 yards from where you think that bedding area is, trying to be kind of close into there. On the flip side, in the evening, are you relating more to, I know you mentioned that you're relating more to the food source, but I'm just curious about the relativity of being near that food source. Are you hunting right on the food, or do you like to still usually try to stay pretty far off it? I, I know from some of the stuff I've read from you, you've talked a lot about the lines of movement and, and placing mm-hmm. yourself on that, but I'd love to hear a little more about that and um, you know, and if that factors into your distance from food or distance from the prime food, things like that. Well, one of the things, and kind of looking at absolutes too, and one of those things is that absolute is where is the staging area. So staging area to me is a is a really thick area, brushy area, high stem count density of regeneration, conifers, grasses, briars, kind of that mix where that last step of safety that a deer uh, will go through from its secure bedding, secure travel corridor, gets to that edge in that staging area, and when it pops out of there, it's really heading towards food. And so a lot of times, because of the stem density and the proximity to food, those areas also become doe family group bedding areas. And so what I'm trying to do is um, really protect that. So I'm, I'm thinking of a spot that I hunted in the evening. It was in uh, 2011, shot a real nice five, six-year-old buck, um, beautiful buck on October 22nd. And I was able to position myself. There was bedding areas on benches down below the flat that I was on. And then there was a staging area that was probably about 70 to 80 yards from where my stand location was. And so if you can kind of imagine, I'm coming into the stand location to my left and approximately within 75 to 150 yards, there's high-quality bedding. To my right, about 70 to 80 yards, there's a staging area with a high likelihood that there were some doe family groups bedding. And then about 30 yards out in the grass from there was the start of one of our food plots. That was uh, that food plot, the deer could go in either direction for 550 yards one way or 400 yards in the other. And what I like about not having a big circular food plot at that point is once a deer entered that food source in the evening, it really stretched them out. So more deer would move, more deer. Those deer are pulled out in the middle of fields, away from the field edge. And uh, and that, to me, helps more deer cycle through, too. So in that case, um, I actually shot that buck with maybe 45 minutes to go before dark as he was cruising between that staging area and the bedding area. And uh, it was kind of a dead area almost a secure travel but more of a travel corridor on benches and funnels than than actually coming into you know i was basically coming in between doe bedding and buck bedding on a more of an open flat um, and the doe bedding being the staging area okay and coming up here is adam hayes he has been on a number of tv shows including team 200 which has been his latest uh he's killed a whole lot of impressive deer including uniquely compared to a lot of people four different bucks over 200 inches and he does this in a very targeted specific uh, strategic way which makes his input very interesting here's some quick ideas from adam on hunting october you talked about the success that you have towards the end of october 
partly in that period of time that people call the October lull. Um, and from some of the things I've read, you, you've certainly killed some of your giant bucks during that time frame. And I, I understand that, you know, what we've been talking about, the moon and understanding to be patient and waiting to push in till those conditions are right. I know that's a big part of your of your kind of formula for success, but what else are you doing at that time of year? What are the other pieces of that puzzle in late October that are helping you have success? Because people struggle with that sometimes. Yeah, well, it goes back to really seeing the big picture and understanding what's going on that time of the year. You know, if, if, if you're after a specific animal and you want your best opportunity to kill that animal, you need to concentrate on when that animal is going to be the most predictable and the most patternable, and that's early season. Before you've got into, into the rut, when he's chasing all over the place, late season, they've been pressured for three or four months and they're on edge. Every little thing they hear and smell and see. Early season is, I think, it's your best chance to kill a specific animal. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the October lull and how tough it is to hunt. Yeah, it is in a sense. But, you know, I learned this from Andre is that those animals are doing the exact same thing pretty much every day. All they're doing is they're bedding and they're feeding and they're going from A to B. And they're doing it in a very, very small area. They're not traveling very far at all. They're, they're very vulnerable because they're so predictable and patternable because they're doing the same thing every day. But they're very tough to kill because they're doing it in a very small area. And you're normally only going to get one chance to invade that little area before game's over. And it completely changes his pattern. He goes nocturnal. He goes to the next farm over. I don't believe they run out of the county, but they will definitely change their pattern. So you're only going to get one crack at them early. So that's when the late season scouting comes into play. That's when, you know, knowing what these animals are doing, where they're at, you know, where they're bedding, where they're feeding, how they're getting back and forth from A to B, knowing where the weak spot's at, where you need to be to kill them, having things set up, knowing what winds you need to get into that spot to kill them. You know, maybe having some strategically placed trail cameras along that pattern so you know when that animal is moving during daylight. And um, like I said, it, it's a tough time to hunt, but if you really understand what's going on, it's your best chance to kill a big mature buck because he's doing the exact same thing every day. It just makes it very difficult to, to get it done on more than one occasion because, like I said, you you walk into the, that buck's bedroom in mid-October and you don't kill him, the, the game is it either got tougher or it's over because he's, he's going to be somewhere else. He's going to know you were in there, and it's just – that's why it's so tough for guys, like I said, to, to not hunt a big deer. So everything's perfect, and then once you get it perfect, you know how to get into that area without disturbing that animal and you kill him the first time in when he's got the, the wind and the moon in his favor, get in and get him out. Andre used to say it was he was surgically removing a big buck from the face of the earth, and that's really <laughs> which, how you got to look at it. You know, you're sense. looking at it like a surgeon. Think about the amount of effort a surgeon puts into, you know, not only, you know, being able to practice medicine, but knowing what he needs to do in that operating room before he goes in there, and it's really – 
it's that black and white. I mean, you, you got to go in there and surgically remove that animal. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. That's that's one that I'm gonna that I'm gonna start using. I like it. Um, so something you mentioned, and it's something that you know I've always have believed. I think to a degree is during that time of year, typically, if you have all these things in your favor. Is it safe to say that you are usually trying to get closer to a bedding area at that time of year when you have the right conditions, when you know where the buck is? Most of those hunts, those kill sets are probably tight in the bedroom because of, like you mentioned, the fact that these bucks are using a really small area? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I think those deer are moving around. You know, in the area where I hunt in central Ohio, they're not moving very far between their bed and where they're feeding at 100, 200 yards max. So, wherever you're at, you're pretty darn close to where he's betting. Yeah. So can you, you tell know, us? I've had my best, I've had my best luck in, on those, on those sets in evening hunts. I very, very rarely ever try a morning hunt early season on those animals. But if I'm going to, if I've tried it once or twice in the evening and haven't got it done and I know right where that animal is betting and then maybe I have a stand already hung in that bedding area, I will not go into that bedding area on an early season hunt until I have that red moon time one, two, three hours after daylight. I've witnessed it on a handful of occasions, seeing a big, you know, 200 class animal coming back to bed late on those overhead times late in the morning. And that, those were the only times that animal came back late. So, so they're, sta- they're feeding a little later. Because the the moon is telling them to not go back to bed yet. Yeah, instead of, you know, that that moon time hitting in the middle of the night, they fed and they're laying down and starts cracking daylight and they're heading back and get into their bed, you know, before shooting light. They're actually feeding closer to daylight and you have a better chance of them feeding, you know, into daylight and coming back just a little bit late. So how, how much of a buffer are you giving yourself when you go into those tree stands as far as time's concerned? Are you going in two hours early, one hour early? You talking about mornings or evenings yeah, or both? Mornings. Well, mornings, I'd like to get in super early because I want everything to have a chance to to calm down. And I'm, I mean, if I go in and try to dive into a bedding area in the morning, I'm taking my time. I mean, I don't want to break a twig. I don't want to bang my bow up against the stand. I mean, I don't want to do anything. I'm I'm doing everything in slow motion because you just can't make any mistakes in a bedding area in the morning. So I give myself twice as much time as I think I need to get into my spot undetected, you know, literally tiptoeing into a spot and, you know, giving myself an hour before daylight for everything to, to maybe calm down a little bit and just to make sure that that animal is nowhere close to the bedding area if, if it's at all possible when I get in there. Yeah. And to wrap us up, we got a couple excerpts from my very first conversation on the Wired Hunt podcast with Mark Jury. If you've listened to any of our other more recent episodes with him, you know he's a wealth of information. Here he's going to talk through some thoughts on morning hunts in October, on the October lull, on some weather factors related to October, and then some of his high-level thoughts on different phases of this month. So here we go. Now, I want to go off on a brief tangent here. Um, 
because Dan and I, over the past weeks and really the last year or two we've been doing this, we have an ongoing debate about morning hunts. And we asked this to our guests last week, and now you, you just briefly mentioned this, and it made me think about it. So I want to get your opinion real fast. Um, hunting mornings in October, in general, is that something you would be for or against? I will hunt every first morning of the front and none of the others until the latter part of October. Then I will hunt every morning until about Thanksgiving. Okay. And can you, so can you explain to us why you don't hunt all those other mornings in October? A lack of movement and spooking deer getting into their bedroom. They're not moving very far for the most part. It's an afternoon game. I mean, their afternoon is, is like our morning, you know, that they've been bedded all day. That's when they get up and by early morning, they're going back to bed. Uh, the first morning, the front is awesome, regardless of what the date is in October. It is amazing. That first north northerly morning, I don't care if it's October 2nd or 14th or 15th, right in the middle of the low, that morning will be phenomenal, guaranteed. Yeah, that's good. That's good to know. I think it, it continues to evolve me and Dan's thoughts and opinions on this, too, hearing the different perspectives. And that it makes a lot of sense waiting for the fronts. I tend to do that a lot when it comes to even the evening hunts. And it makes sense that those morning hunts could really still be great even early on with that right. Oh, they're rocking, man. That first morning is awesome. Yeah, it's just awesome. And they're, they're in a good mood and they're moving around. And what happens is they stay on the feed later, right? So they're late coming back to bed. And now this is provided you're in the right spot. You know, you can go goof any hunt up by hunting the wrong place at the wrong time. It's all about trying to get the right place at the right time. But generally, they're on the food later, and then they're going to be later coming back to bed. So, therefore, you're going to see daylight activity. Whereas most mornings, uh, without that front, they're at bed or already bedded by the time it's daybreak. That's my experience in, in October. Yeah. So on on that particular instance, are you going to be hunting near the bedding area where they're coming back, or are you going to be hunting some kind of transition or pinch point to catch them coming back to their bed? Depends on the mass crop that year. If there's a mass crop, I'm going to be somewhere on an on an oak flat or somewhere where there's acorns because they're phenomenal throughout October uh, on the cold fronts. If there's not much of a mass crop, I'm probably going to be not far off of a food plot in a known bedding area because they're just not moving very far off of where their, their primary food source is. What about specifically a morning hunt? That's what I was talking about. Oh, okay. I got you. That's, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah. In the morning, that's where I would go. And in October for those types of hunts, how early are you going to be getting into your stands in the morning? Oh, did I lose you? Hello? Yep. Can you hear me, Mark? Oh, there you are. Okay. Yep, was just curious for those morning hunts in October. How early are you trying to get into your stand in the morning? Uh, fairly early. It's the thirty minutes before the first thought of light. I they're just not far. They're not moving very far, so you better use the cover of darkness. And if you're if you're you, you get away with so much more during the cover of darkness than you do even at the first hint of light. It's so much easier to blow deer out at the first hint of light. Then when it's black dark, did you ever notice that? Like if you go in your stand, it's black dark. One might bounce 30 or 40 yards, but yet when it gets light, you still see that deer. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're climbing up and there's a little light, you're going to blow and plumb out of the country. I love black dark during October. Yeah, d- definitely a much safer approach that way. That's for sure. Much safer. And it's more important then than during the rut. Now I got a question for you. I, you just brought it up um, in one of your last comments about the October lull. All right. So what we've talked about 
so far is, you know, the barometric pressure, the um, consistent winds, the, the first change in a wind direction, the cooler temperatures. Am I to assume that your definition of the October lull is the opposite of all those? Well, the October lull is also what I call the October swell. There's a defined period or a defined phase in the middle part of October where they come out of their feeding pattern that they're into heavily from, you know, from the time they drop the velvet until about October the 10th through the 14th at various year to year when they go into the lull. But from then till about October the 24th or 25th, there is a definitely uh, subdued movement period there in October unless it's a major cold front. You have to have cold to have a, a decent day, in my opinion. So in those situations where you do get, you know, I'm going to continue to drill on these examples. Let's say now we're in that dreaded, quote-unquote, October lull. You do get that front. Is that just a situation where you're going to move into one of your is it, would you move into one of your better stands at that point or even though you have a front you're still going to wait till a better time period maybe later in the year? Uh, no, I'll go into it and, and you have to recognize what's happening during the swell. I said they go into it looking one way and they come out looking another way. I mean that is the buildup. That's the testosterone going from ground zero up to where it peaks to where all the daylight activity happens there during the seeking phase of the pre-rut there in late October. That it, it, that period, when you do get a cold front, that's when you look back historically at your pictures and you go, where was I getting daylight activity or where was I getting a certain buck's picture a lot during this date range? Chances are it's in and around the scrape. We always transition all of our cameras off of travel or food during the greener pastures phase. When we go into the October low, that's the time we transition every camera we have to scrapes because scrapes are going to absolutely light up during that phase. And you can go in the middle part of October. In fact, it is the best time to hunt scrapes is during the lull. But you need a cold front to actually get one on his feet moving. And the one thing that we've kind of talked about interspersed throughout all these different factors is the time of the year. And you mentioned your show, 13, and the fact that you guys broke down the year into 13 different phases. Could you, you know, briefly walk us through what those phases are. We've touched on a few of them, but could you walk us through what those phases are that you guys believe are, you know, distinct and maybe give us a quick, like your one main thing to note about each one of those phases. Is that possible? You know, hold on. Let me grab my phase outline here. I can't do it off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you my favorites. <laughs> That'll work too. Hold on. I, I do have them broke down here. Let me get there. Just a moment. The first phase is September the 15th, and this just coincides with when the Missouri season opens. It's September 15th to September 24th, and that's the phase we call the new beginning. Uh, If you're on one, there's a good chance you're going to kill them if you get a weather front. It's all about food source that time of year. It's all about trail pictures and your summer observation, et cetera, et cetera. I love that phase. I also love the phase that follows it, which is greener pasture, September 25th through October the 12th. To me, greener pastures is one of the best phases to kill a mature buck because there's a defoliation that goes on during this phase throughout the Midwest. And I'm only talking in terms of the hunting that I've observed here in Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, and Kansas. When those beans that were planted back in May and June eventually turn from green to brown and defoliate, there is a major switch within the herd to go to the next green food source. And if you've got that green food source close to where you've seen a mature buck all summer, 
you're going to go through what I call green green transfer. There's a good chance he's going to transfer from that green bean field into your green plot. The difference is the bean field might have been 40 acres, and your green field might be one to three acres, a much smaller uh, target area to try and kill that deer. That phase, to me, is one of the best of the whole year. Um, October 13th through the 24th, we talked about the October law. Tough phase overall. You've got to have a cold front, and mornings can be quite good. We key in on scrapes with our cameras and with our hunting tactics. We're going to key in on scrapes in and around that, that October law. With still some good deer during that period because they're still on food source and they're not moving very far, but you got to have a weather front in order to do it. Pre-lock, October 25th to November the 1st. To me, this phase is all about killing the oldest, biggest deer in the herd. If you can find him, especially with those historical pictures like we were talking about, you can get on and kill that particular deer this phase. Why? Because it's one of the few phases where that really old deer is actually on his feet. He's looking for the first available doe to give the first hint of estrus. And I don't know that they're really ready to breed yet during this phase, but he's certainly ready to start tending her. They may tend seven to ten days before he breeds her, but you can bet one thing, that oldest buck in the herd is going to be the first one to find the one that's smelling the best. I love that phase for a really mature deer. All right. So there you have it. Uh, a lot to take in there, I realize, and, and a little bit all over the place. But I, I think that if you take a little bit from each of these different people, you can come into this next month with a lot of different little tricks up your sleeve, I think, and some things to think about the next time you're thinking about, should I hunt this day or not? Or should I hunt this tree stand or not? Or should I worry about the October lull or not? I'm hoping that this podcast is going to give you a starting point and point you in the right direction. As I mentioned at the top, these were just little bits from much larger conversations. So go back and listen to these. Gordon Whittington was episode number 123. Dan Infault was episode number 27. Bernie Berenger was episode number 173. Jeff Sturgis was number 77. Adam Hayes was number 69. And Mark Drury was number 63. Check those out. Each one is jam-packed with a lot more information than we just heard here. So that's going to do it. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Hopefully this provided you something helpful to kick off the month of October. It's a roller coaster, guys. And we are just beginning to head up that first hill. And I'm pumped. This is the best time of year. Enjoy it. Soak it in. Hunt as much as you possibly can. Um, because, you know, don't uh, don't neglect important obligations and responsibilities, of course. But I can tell you from experience that I look forward to this all year. And then the month goes by so fast. Just a blink and it's gone. So uh, for whatever kind of time and energy you can put into it, at least enjoy it. Soak it in. And uh, just realize and, and remember these are special, special times. So best of luck. Shoot straight. Have fun. Be safe. And stay wired to hunt. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.